Good morning. And happy Father's Day. Uh, you who are, uh, were here last week, we are, are actually kind of, well, we're probably a third way through. Um, the Gospel of Mark is, a, is the shortest gospel, but it is packed full of action. And as we see today, uh, we will see Jesus and his men on the march as uh, we see a, an example of what happens when we can't see. Have you, ever, have you ever had an instance where you can't see? All the time. All the time. <laughs> Good. Yeah, all the time. Some of us, that's true. And uh, there are times when we, we can't see or, or possibly can't perceive certain things. And, and today what we're going to look at is, is uh, Mark chapter 8. And as we move into Mark 8, I want to ask a question. And this is not just for... Uh, for, it's kind of rhetorical, but it's not just for Father's Day. I didn't really make it that, make it that way because the next question I think is, are you hard-hearted is one thing. So that's about this. Are you hard-hearted? Okay, so that's one thing. And then the next one, are you just thick-headed? Have you ever been, have you ever been accused of being thick-headed or hard-headed, either one of those two things? <laughs> okay, okay, all right. You won't ask for directions. You won't stop and ask for directions, more specifically. And as we look at today's text, I want you to kind of think about times when maybe you were this way. Maybe, or people who you know who are that way. It's all a lot easier to pick it out with someone else, right? Oh, yeah, they're, they're hard-headed or they're hard-hearted. Um, and as we look at Mark 8, we'll see kind of some examples of, of those things going on. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get en enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground, and when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them and also and told for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basket, basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into a boat with his disciples and went to the region of Delmenitha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him, and they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? You still, do you not still see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember... When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? 
12, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? There are times when you ask the question, do you understand? Someone asks the question, do you understand? Sometimes you're like, yeah, I, I understand. And really, you probably don't. You can see it as a teacher sometimes when you're, especially if you're teaching like math or science or something, you're like, oh, is this all clear? And then you have a line of people coming up with questions, notebooks full, and then you realize you failed miserably as a teacher when you presented this information. Well, Jesus had presented his information in a way that was very much a demonstration. And so as we look at today's text, we're looking really at this Jesus is on the move, and he is moving throughout this, the territories just a little bit helpful to kind of see this whole scenario and geographically because it all centers around this lake right in the middle of this land. And so we start out in the bottom right corner in Decapolis. And Decapolis is just, Deke is 10, 10 cities. They're Greek, they're Gentile. So there are 10 cities down there. They all kind of put them together and said, this is the area of Decapolis. That's where he's feeding the 4,000 people. There are many, many Gentiles there, not Jews, not Jewish people. They're Gentiles, so they're not of the faith. And so that's where he starts off. And then he ends up crossing the lake seven miles. And you can see kind of by the mile scale thing in the bottom right corner, crosses about seven miles to Magdala, and then he heads over to Bethsaida at the very end. And in between in Magdala, he has this conversation with these Pharisees. And these Pharisees have, uh, have come to him in a, in a particular way. And it wasn't like, hey, Jesus, I, I didn't catch point number two or three that you were talking about. They actually come to him with a test. And they, they want to have him, much like an, a, magi- a magician or somebody who can just uh, uh, produce miracles, do something for them. As he leaves that place of Magdala on the left upper corner, he heads back over to Bethsaida in the top right corner. So he does basically kind of a jig-jag as he travels throughout this whole story. Important because Decapolis is Greek, and Magdala, Mary of Magdalene, that's where she's from, that is a Jewish area, Galilee, that's where Jesus was from. So you can kind of think of the lower portion as Gentile and the upper portion as Jewish. Important because of what Jesus is doing in the big upper story of his mission. And so we see in Decapolis, he feeds 4,000 people. And those 4,000 people have been exposed to Jesus before. So let's, as we go through this, kind of unpack a little bit. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Why did it say another? It's hard. Yeah, there's always a crowd. The last time, which was... Mark 6, there was not 4,000, but how many? Five. There was 5,000. And you kind of think this is the same story. You're like, deja vu. This is a, they just reprinted it. No, it's a completely different story. It takes place in Gentile land, not in Jewish land. Jesus' ministry is moving outward, not just to the Jewish people, but to who? To you and I. You and I. And so as we see this, there's another large crowd Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long way or long distance. Now, he's in Gentile territory, and some of them come a long way, and they've been with him how long? 
three days. Why would Gentiles follow Jesus for three days? Sometimes it's really good to ask yourself questions like, what's going on? What's, let's drill down here. What's going on? Why would, why would a Gentile have any interest in following some guy from Galilee for three days at the point of exhausting all of their food and resources? Okay, that's the question in our mind. And then, we, then we're kind of ready to look at, hey, what is going on here? Let's, uh, let's reveal back three, actually three chapters to Mark 5. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell, tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Who was this guy? Yeah, he was. He's a Greek. And, and he was a crazy guy. They kind of call him what? Right? He was bound by chains, and he was, like, tearing himself up. And Jesus met him, and he set him free from his demons, and they call him legion. Why? Because there were a legion of demons in him. And those demons went where at the end of the day with Jesus' help? Into the pigs. Okay, into the pigs. And the 2,000 pigs ran down the hill, and this all took place where? Decapolis. Why is it important we look at the map? Because this is exactly where he's feeding the 4,000 people. And you're thinking, if you wanted to get some people's attention and have them follow you around for three days, do that. Do that in that area in chapter 5, okay? Make the pigs go in there, and everything goes on. And so this man, uh, it says, go home to your own people. That word home is oikos. That means to your body of people who you know and tell them. And so that's what he did, because I'm sure his life had completely transformed we roll two chapters forward to Mark 7, not quite to the 4,000, but right here where Pastor Tri left off last week. It says, Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but, more, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said, and even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And where does this, where does this occur? In Decapolis. Jesus had done many things in Decapolis. And so 4,000 people following him around makes sense, doesn't it? Because they had seen some amazing things. They were astonished with the, was the words there. And so as we jump back into Mark 8 again, we see this problem of feeding 4,000. And Jesus poses the problem to his disciples. And his disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread with them to, to feed them? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. What is Jesus getting at? He asked them, basically, hey, you know what? We're, these people are going to, if we send them away, they're going to collapse. But they pose the problem, where are we going to find enough food? And then he says to them, how many loaves do you have? And they replied, seven. What is Jesus, uh, Jesus getting at here? Have you ever been without the sufficient resources that you need? Every day, okay. Honest, right? Lord, help me today because I'm going to get overwhelmed quick. It may not be bread. It may be my job. It may be my relationships. It could be my health. It could be a many different things, but we are insufficient. And he's just pointing out to them, you know what? Here, there's an insufficiency here, 
and he's going to address some things that need to be remediated in his training program for his disciples. And so that's kind of where we're heading. Now, the next question is, have you ever been so hungry that you've been shaking? It's okay. You can raise your hand. Oh, yeah. yeah true? So you've been hungry to a point where you're just like, anything. I'll eat anything. Almost anything, right? you just like, whatever it is, if it's consumable, I'll do it. These people had been there for how long? Three days. And we realized they were super hungry. If you just go over that, you think, oh, they eat breakfast, and now this is lunch. You miss the whole thing. So he told the crowd to sit down on the ground. And when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. Doesn't give you the number. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. Now, he gives thanks for the bread, and then fish, he gives what? Thanks for the fish, too. Why does he do that? If you just read through that, you miss it, don't you? You're like, okay, thanks and thanks. Have you ever said grace twice at a meal? Have you ever had people just kind of share? And you realize Jesus did this all the time. The word Eucharistio, Eucharist, if you grew up maybe Catholic or um, Episcopal, that actually means to give thanks. And so Jesus, when you see giving thanks, I think it's like 80% or 90% of the time in the Gospels, it's always focused around food and the provision of food. And there's this connection between the bread of life and Jesus, and you kind of see this, and you're just like, wow, when you're really hungry, what do you really only want? Yeah. You don't want, when you're really, really hungry, you know, that, that little toy that you wanted from the store doesn't really matter. When you're really, really spiritually hungry, Jesus is going to address this. And so as they're sitting there, he gives thanks for both of them, and, and he distributes them. And this reminds you much of what occurrence that just happened not too long ago, the feeding of the 5,000. But there were how many loaves there? Five. And how many fish? Two, here we have a little different scenario. That's why we know this story is not, it's not even the same geographical location. The people ate and were satisfied. And afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. Turns out that those basketfuls are a little different basket. They're actually about the size. Somebody could actually get in one of those baskets. If you were a kid and never rode down a laundry basket down the stairs, that's kind of the size of basket we're talking. A little, just, in, just not an idea. <laughs> It was fun, though. It was really fun. (laughs) It was more than enough. So Jesus, after he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. This is his getting away for the R&R. Remember I I told you about that movie, What About Bob? And the guy that gets away, and he's a psychologist, and yet his client shows up on his vacation, and he just, he can't get enough peace. It's like Bob got to his... (laughs) his place, and then somebody was there, and they were just overwhelming him, so he picks up and moves to some other place. And as he shows up, he goes across the ocean, across the Sea of Galilee. He goes seven miles to Magdala, and who meets him? The Pharisees. So they are, and they don't just come out, and they're not just asking a question like, hey, we we really want to know about this or that. They come out in a formation. As you read the, the Greek language, it's almost a military formation. They are hunting for him. They want to pin him down 
and to destroy his credibility. And so there's an issue of authority, and how do you have authority to do this and that? And so the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. So he's on the move again, and now he's going, going up north to Bethsaida. And this interaction is really important because what we see is Jesus interacting with these Pharisees who want to see what? Ah, yeah. And so they're asking him to create, to do a, do a, a miracle, another sign. But he's just done what? Miracle after miracle after miracle. And so they're asking for one more thing. Have you ever asked God to give you a sign? Okay, be honest to yourself. You can rhetorically answer this one, okay? And it could be this or that, and you're kind of like fleecing it, right? There's that biblical part of, of asking for a sign. Is it wrong? No. Is it wrong to do it with the intent to trap Jesus? Oh, you better bet. You better bet. And so they, they have put themselves in this position where they are, they are actually kind of like, you know, when you sit for your dissertation and all the professors are there and you're getting drilled, they put themselves into the position of drilling Jesus. And Jesus is like, I'm not playing your game. I'm not going to just produce another miracle just so we can go on. He is going to address some things that are really, really um, apparent, which is their hard-heartedness. And he's going to have that discussion with his disciples as they leave this place, as they cross to the other side. We're going to first look at Matthew 16, which is the parallel passage to Mark. And here's what it says. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. And so here's the same scenario from Matthew's standpoint. He replied, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the time. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away and went to Bethsaida. So Jesus says, you know what? And Mark cuts it short. He's like, he just didn't have anything to do with these guys. And Matthew gives us a little more insight to saying, you know what? Jesus kind of told them, you can tell, you, you have enough vision to actually look at the sky and predict what the weather's going to look like. But you can't tell spiritually what has come upon you because they have been waiting for how many years since the last prophet? Mike, yes, 400 years. And Jesus is saying to them, you know what? There's been a clear sky for 400 years. But now I stand before you and you can't see me. You can't see what's really there. They had spiritual eyes that couldn't see them. What is the sign of Jonah? Except for the sign of... Jesus said, okay, I'll give you one more sign, but not right now. It's the what? Sign of? Story of Jonah. Great story. Ben went through... Ben was going through that study, and, and Chance is going through the study right now on Monday nights. Uh, right now, media presentation on, on Jonah. This, this guy does a great job. The book is just great, so you're going to just start from there and work up. But what is the sign of Jonah that Jesus speaks about? Ah, okay. So first of all, do you know that many people walking down the street, if you said, yeah, the, the biblical passage about Jonah, you know what they would say to you? I don't believe that stuff. Some guy got swallowed by a big whale, 
and then got spit out, and you expect me to believe that, right? So how do we know that the, Jonah, the story of Jonah is even true? First of all, Jesus actually makes a point of it in saying this is the crux to the argument, the sign of Jonah, which gives validity to the fact that Jonah was a biblical um, time period where he was actually kind of supposed to be ministering to Nineveh. And what we see is the sign of Jonah, as, as you said, was really the sign of the resurrection. Because for three days, he wouldn't go into a belly of a fish, but he would go where? Into the belly of the earth. And he would spend three days in a tomb, and then at the end of those three days, what would happen? He would rise again. And so he said, this is the sign you're going to look for. All of the feeding, okay, that's one thing. But when you see the sign of Jonah, that is super important to the, to the ministry of Jesus. That is off, okay. Luke. This is important. Have you ever had someone who said, I just, you know, I just don't, I don't believe, I, I just need, I need to know for sure, I need proof. Have you ever had anybody say, I need proof of, of Christianity before? In the last month or so, I've had a couple of conversations with people who are kind of in this bent. And this conversation that occurs in Luke 16 gives us a little bit of insight into what's going on. Um, and what's going on is this man, there's, there's two people, there's Lazarus, and there's this other man who are now dead, and one is in Hades, suffering, and one is in heaven and with Abraham. And we see this interaction of people who say, you know, if I could just see one more miracle, if God would just show me a sign, then I would believe. I've had people say that to you. If God was, you know, right here in front of me, I, I would believe, or just one more miracle. And here's really um, the answer to that as we look at Luke 16. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. So this rich man is in Hades. He realizes he's made a grave mistake and that he has rejected God. And he's, his thinking, which is great because now he's thinking about others, is that, uh, that his brothers are going to also go to the same place. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And the proof of that is people still don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And so we see this story in, in this unbelief of the Pharisees, and they will not believe. And at some point, uh, when someone's been shown so much, their unbelief is something where it's the cause of it really comes from the fact that they will not see. And not a, there isn't enough evidence you could possibly present to them to make them understand. Well, now they're in the boat. And the disciples had forgotten to bring bread because they were in a hurry. They just jumped in the boat. They're getting away from the Pharisees. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. And so you, hear, you, you see this conversation going on, and you're like, oh, okay, so Jesus asked them about bread, which is true, and this yeast thing. And this yeast is something that is actually, uh, what is yeast? What, describe it to me. What, what is it? What, what is yeast really made of, or what's the component of yeast? It's what? It's fungi. Have you ever had like athletes' feet? 
okay, that's kind of where we're, that's kind of where, it's fungi. And when, and when you have athletes' feet in a little part, you're going to get athletes' feet in everywhere because it's yeast and it spreads, doesn't it? And so Jesus says to them, you know, they're, they're thinking about the bread, and Jesus said, there is yeast of the Pharisees and there's yeast of Herod or the Herodians. What does yeast of the Pharisees mean? It's not fungi, but what does yeast do? It spreads. And what are the Pharisees going to spread? What do we just see them do to Jesus? Drill down. We will not believe. We will not. You're going to show us another sign, and then we're going to make you show another sign, and they're going to make another sign. And Jesus, basically, in this story that we just read, was that if they will not believe the prophets, God's word, they're not going to believe. And that is the yeast of the Pharisees. It is the unbelief in our hearts that cause us to kind of spread that around too because once that's happened, it's really difficult. I just want to say it's Father's Day. And thank you, fathers, for being here. The yeast of the Pharisees doesn't apply to you because you're a believer. And the yeast that you give to your family because of the fact that you believe in Jesus is a positive kind of yeast. It's statistically just so true. When mom and dad follow Jesus, it makes it so much easier for young people to follow Jesus. It works the opposite way. But what is the yeast of, the, of Herod? What was Herod about? First of all, there are more than one Herod. Remember the Herod that killed all the babies? He was about destruction. Remember the Herod that decapitated John the Baptist? And there was plenty of them. They're called the Herodians, and they were all about themselves in the world. And they were all about positions because they were sort of Jewish, but they were also in this Roman, Roman thing, and they were sort of officers. So they were kind of a hybrid. And they were really, really into the world. And the question is, is are we as a church, do we have the yeast of, the, of Herod amongst us? Are we so concentrating on the world that we miss the spiritual um, impact and importance of what, what the church is for? Do we get distracted? Do we see that squirrel go, and pretty soon we're out of, our, out of the word, we're out of fellowship, and, and it's, it's summer, and I look around, and I see more chairs open than I normally do, and I'm not saying anything, but I'm just saying maybe the evening service will be super full is what I'm saying. <laughs> but there is that temptation when it's nice out to do what? Yeah, to run away, to run away and go fishing or do whatever it is. So just a kind of a warning, this is what, this is what Jesus is talking about. It's, it is really a fungi that spreads. Have you ever had spiritual myopia? Yeah. It's hard to see what? As you get older, it's hard to see what? Well, just anywhere. <laughs> it's hard to see up close, and then it's also hard to see far, isn't it? And we have that same thing in sp- spiritually as well. Aware of the discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? There's this spiritual sight that we have. Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? He's talking now to his disciples who have been following him. And they've seen the 5,000 being fed and 4,000 being fed. And he asked them, do you still not understand? When the when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of, did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. 
And last, he said to them, do you still not understand? And we can ask ourselves that same question. I can ask myself the same question as well. Do I still not understand that Jesus, his point of all of this was for them to be able to place their faith in him? And their insufficiency of not being able to feed those, those people or their insufficiency of not being able to control the storm or many other things that he did were all for them to, to really come to a point where they actually could place their faith in him. And in, as we look at our spiritual hunger, I want to ask you, what is, it, what is your spiritual hunger today? On a zero to ten scale, what would you give it for a number? Just a rhetorical question. Because that will determine how we see ourselves and also because of the fact that we see our world through the eyes of our spiritual mindset. And then this one as well. There is a point at which unbelief is a decision. So the person who has, not, who has been exposed to Jesus and then doesn't make a decision about Jesus has done what? They've made a decision about Jesus, ultimately, at some point in time. Not that God can't save them at the very last minute, and I have no doubt that he does. Thief on the cross, all those things go on. But for the most part, we, what we see is when someone has rejected Jesus or rejected the word over and over and over, they become spiritually calloused. And the light that's inside of them goes dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. And one of the things that the enemy uses against us is this. Tomorrow next year, tonight, later. Have you ever, ever thought to yourself, I'm going to get serious about following Jesus next year. I'm going to, I'm going to join a small group n- next year or whatever it is. I'll get through this season. And what happens is, is that little light that's inside of us becomes more and more dim, and we have a difficult time responding to what God does inside of us. And I just have a question for you today. As Jesus talks so much about food and especially bread, have you received the bread of life? Because there's a, there is a decision to make. You're sitting here. You have heard many of what, many things that Jesus did and said. And yet there's a decision that needs to be made. And I would encourage you, if you have not, come and talk to me or one of the elders here. And we'd love to discuss more about what that means to have a relationship with Jesus, a personal relationship, ongoing relationship with him and as he meets our needs. Romans 10, 17, this is really important. Where does faith come from? If someone said to you, my faith is weak, what would you tell them to do? Maybe I'm just rephrasing the question for you to put it into a different context. If someone said to you, or you said to yourself, my faith is is not really strong, what would you tell them to do? As a therapist, people come to me and say, my arm is weak. This arm here, it doesn't work or whatever. I immediately start thinking about what's going to make that build back up. And what is it that builds our faith? Ah, it is, isn't it? There's this relationship, and it's a conversation. And so faith comes from hearing the message, and the message heard from the word of Christ. And it's this relationship that we have with the Father, and we really gain our faith from having that interaction with him, and particularly his word. And there's usually a response of prayer with that because that's what prayer really is. People don't pray if they don't have faith. Why? Because it makes no sense, does it? If you don't believe he's there or he can do anything about it or that he's good and he's for you, you won't pray. 
And when you read the Bible, what you find out is he cares about you. You are very unique. You were uniquely made. He loves you so much. He has a plan for you. He actually wants, he wants to, to, to make you more and more like this masterpiece. And when we finally grasp that idea by his word and we understand that we are special, then we have this relationship that in which we can place our faith in him. And we have this relationship that is primarily gained through his word and through prayer and spending time with other people who are also getting input from his spirit through word and prayer. Have you ever forgot something? Next week when I ask you what chapter we were studying in Mark, will you remember? Okay, good. And Yeah, good, sure. So the question is, is this, what's the benefit of remembering? Do you remember when the Lord is last good to you? The last time he was really good to you. Would most of you know Carla and Stephen? They, they got married yesterday. If you asked the two of them, when's the last time the Lord is good to them, they would say, yesterday was a particularly big day, wasn't it? God brought them together in a very unique way, and it just, it's just an amazing story. You realize, okay, this is a God thing for sure. When's the last time God did something in your life that you can remember? Ah, yeah. And then you start to go, okay, not only the last meal am I thankful for, but I'm thankful for the last small miracle. And that might have been waking up this morning. Or that might have been when he didn't have enough rent money. Or I had this challenge, this insufficiency, and I couldn't meet it on my own. And all of a sudden, God meets that need for me. And when we remember those things, it builds our faith. What did, the, what did the, the Israelites do whenever God did something in the Old Testament? They would do what? <laughs> well, okay, there was a couple failures along the way, but what did they do when God was faithful? Ah, they would build a monument. Sometimes it was a pile of what? Rocks. And when they would stumble upon that a pile of rocks with their kids, what would they do? They would tell the story. They say, this is when God parted the waters, or this is when, the God, when God did this. When we remember those things in our lives, it builds faith. Because we remember when God was faithful, and therefore he will be faithful in the future. Remembering is so, so important. It's a protection against us falling into that. And then lastly, give thanks. Wow. If you... If you can, and on a daily basis, you and I can remember to give thanks, we, we recognize where all good things come from, which is from him. And so in a few minutes, we're going to sing a song, and the purpose of singing that song is to do what? Honor him and to give him thanks, because he made this day. And it's really every day's Father's Day, but in a special way. We honor him today. And so that'll be a, a neat way for us to say, you know what? Thank you. This is your Father's Day card. And you might even clap if you've never clapped. Or you might just actually just get into it a little bit more. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is how we gain faith. Father, thank you for the things that you've miraculously done in our lives. The fact that we are here today. No one seeks you out without without your just calling us and loving us and wooing us to you. Thank you for the spiritual hunger you've placed in each one of us. Lord, we also have in our minds the people who have spiritual blindness in our lives, those people who we too would like to have 
uh, have a relationship with you. Lord, we pray for them. We pray for those who don't know you yet and trust that you are working on them. And we, we ask that you would empower us as we pray for them and as we uh, reach out to them and love them and share your love with them, that they would respond, that they would have a soft heart. Lord, we just thank you so much for all the good things that you've done for us. And as we eat the meals this week, every time we eat a meal, that we will give you double thanks because you are the provider of all our things. And as we get up early in the morning and spend five minutes in prayer and five minutes in, in, in the Word, and maybe that turns into an hour, that you would bless us with spiritual food, that it would sustain us, and that it would empower us to become people who uh, really honor you and give you glory and, and allow you to work in our lives. And we just thank you for this wonderful day, and it's because of your Son that we are here, and we give him thanks in his name. Amen.